Um, but his crib is no fine estate. He's born in a stable. His bed is a trough for animal feed. If this wasn't weird enough, angels appeared to announce his birth, not to local authorities, but to mere laborers, shepherds working the night shift. As a toddler, he's honored by some obscure wise men from the east, but then promptly made a refugee to Egypt because these wise men incidentally brought his existence to King Herod's attention. And then the story continues from there. When he finally gets home, he's raised in Nazareth, a town of a bunch of nobodies. He learns carpentry. And then to the surprise of most everybody around him, he starts preaching, saying the kingdom of God has come. He heals people. He gets students, disciples who follow him wherever he goes. Things are looking up like he's becoming somebody. And then at the height of his powers, during the Jewish Passover, one of, one of his disciples betray him. He's arrested, put on trial. His once adoring countrymen cry, crucify him. And the Roman occupiers do just that. He's laid to rest in a tomb. But three days later, he walks out of it. He rose from the dead. He shows his disciples he's really alive. He tells them to go to the world with the good news. And then he ascends to heaven, promising he'll be back. It's a weird story, right? We've domesticated it because it's so familiar, kind of like mom's pancakes. But it's strange when you really think about it. Who could make up such a story? Who would make up such a story? Yet the disciples who told the story, who put this together, this record that we have, who knew whether it was true or just made up, were willing to die rather than deny its truth. And many did suffer torment and death because they insisted it was true. Let's say it is true. What does it all mean? What is the real significance of Christmas? It's not obvious on the surface. But the whole New Testament is dedicated to telling us what it means. And we can't consider every angle of meaning this morning. Well, let's take the one that gets to the heart behind the significance of Christ's birth and everything that follows from it. I'm going to invite you to turn with me this morning to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 24 to 29 to start with. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 24. The Apostle Paul here is writing to the Christians in Galatia. There's a church in Galatia. It's made up of both Jew and Gentile, that is non-Jewish non people, Greeks alike. And he's been there before. These are people that are already Christians. And he's writing to them to give them some guidance. 
starting in verse 24. He says, So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I gave you a little bit of a background there that Paul is writing to the Christians in Galatia, and I've just plopped you right in the middle of his letter to them. The primary issue that Paul is addressing in this letter is that these Christians, who again are made up of both Jews and Gentiles, have fallen prey to this notion that in order for them to be saved, to be truly righteous, they need to uphold all the Jewish law with all its lens, uh, rules about um, clean eating, you know, no pork, eating kosher, having to be circumcised, um, all the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Now, Paul has already preached them the gospel, which says that these things have passed away in Christ, that these have been retired. And the point that Paul really wants to drive home here is, is that this is the only proper explanation for why Christ has come. Why has Christ come? He, tell, he says in verse 24 that Christ came that we might be justified by faith. That's the purpose. That's the reason why Christ has come, that we might be justified by faith. If you're wondering, well, what does justified mean? That means being set right with God so that we might live with him for all eternity. Christ came so that we might have our situation made right so that we might be reconciled with God. And this, not by our own works, but by faith. Now, when Paul, Paul in saying this, he's not claiming that Christ has come to offer some new innovative way to God as though there's another way by which someone could be saved. No, what Paul is trying to say here in these verses is that Christ in coming has actually fulfilled God's purpose all along, that we would be saved by faith. And if you look earlier in chapter 3, and I've selected several verses there um, to help make this point clear, um, we see how this traces all the way back to Abraham. Look at verse 2. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? That is, by faith. And you jump down to verse 8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So you see that Paul's saying that God's purpose all along was that the Gentiles would be saved by faith. But lest we think that the Jews are saved by something else, he points to the fact that Abraham himself was this leading figure of faith. He was the, man, the first man of faith in whose footsteps all of God's 
people follow. Verse 19, he says, Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. So the law was given. All of these things that happened before Christ all occurred in order to lead up to him, to the fulfillment of this promise that all people might be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul characterizes the Old Testament law here as a mere guardian. And we're going to understand this a little bit more fully as we go along. But Paul says that Christ came so that we might be saved by faith, so that by our belief, so by our putting faith in Christ, we might become the children of God. And we, and we hear in the first chapter of John's Gospel, the Apostle John kind of offering this really amazing theological summary right at the outset, talking about Christ's incarnation, Christ's coming. And he says in John 1.12, Yet to all who did receive him, referring to Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's what happens when we believe in Christ. We become children of God. We're not born children of God. A lot of times, I think, because we recognize that God is the creator of all human beings, we just naturally presume that we're all his children. That's not our, posi- that's not our position in relation to him, though, apart from Christ. Because along with Adam and Eve, we've alienated ourselves through our rebellion by sinning by deciding we don't want him to be our God, we want to be our own gods. We've been born apart from God. But Jesus came to fix that. And the remedy is substantiated in himself, as he is the perfect man. And we gain access to that by faith. That is the remedy. And this remedy of faith is manifested as we are baptized. That's us taking, actually actualizing our faith, showing, yes, I do believe in Jesus. It symbolizes our un- union with Christ. And so Paul characterizes that, our faith, our baptism in Christ, as us being clothed in Christ. And it says, though Christ has come along, and he says, lose those rags you're wearing, and put on this new suit that I'm offering you. I'll cover you. This is our salvation as we are covered in Christ. And we see this kind of notion of being clothed in salvation anticipated in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 61.10. He writes, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The result of us being clothed in Christ, being clothed in his righteousness by faith, the results of that occurring are very radical. As Paul indicates, as he goes on into verse 28, 
He then concludes saying, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So not only in Christ do we have a reconciliation between us and God, we also have a reconciliation between each other and also the reconciliation of the fact that it doesn't matter what our skin color is. It does not matter what our social class is. It doesn't matter if we're a man or a woman, for that matter, or an adult or a child. All can be saved by putting faith in Christ. This wasn't what the Jews thought. They thought the Gentiles, they're in a pretty bad place. They used to have a prayer back in that day where the Jewish man would pray, thank God that I'm a Jew, not a Gentile. Thank God that I'm a free man, not a slave. And thank God I'm a man, not a woman. And there's some ritual reasons for that as I understand it, is that because, because of all those things they had access because they were kind of at the top of the mountain. But that wasn't God's purpose. God's purpose wasn't to alienate people. God's purpose always has been to draw all people to himself. And we've seen this divisiveness not just in the Jewish society. It was in Greek society as well. They had similar sayings. Thank goodness I'm a Greek, not a barbarian. And we see it today where people define themselves by identity and divide themselves by identity. And so, even as much as we talk about equality in our society and wanting unity and peace, we seem to find very creative ways to divide ourselves all the more. Christ came to overcome that. So that our one single identity would be Him. Jesus Christ that you and I are Christians. Now, in us being joined to Christ by faith, he's not saying that we lose our identities as though, you know, I'm no longer an American. You know, you're no longer a Jew or a Gentile. You're no longer a man or a woman. No, of course you're still a man and a woman and all those things. But those have faded into the background. They're not what's important. They're not what God is looking at. All that matters is Jesus. Do you have faith in Jesus? Paul testifies to this fact of the importance of, the singular importance of faith as we look through some of his other letters. You go to his letter to the Romans, Romans 3.30. says, There's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. So it doesn't matter The circumcision language is referring to the difference between Jews and Gentiles. Both are saved by faith. And both, he says in Ephesians, are intended to share in this same inheritance. The inheritance which was first given to the Jews is intended to incorporate the Gentiles as well. Ephesians 3.6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. 
The reason why this is mysterious is because it, it seemed like they're excluded. They couldn't have a part. But now they are joined. They are members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. God's promise of salvation starts with Israel, but has always had the trajectory of encompassing the whole world. God wants every human being to be his child. And Jesus makes this possible. All you have to do is place your faith in him. This explains the why of Christmas. God gives himself to humanity so that humanity might gain him. But we're still left wondering about some of the mechanics. Why did this have to wait until Jesus? How does Jesus change anything? Turning to the next chapter in Galatians, Galatians 4, we're going to look at the first seven verses so that we can understand the answers to these questions. Paul writes, What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into, his, into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Now when Paul's using the language of heir here, it does immediately refer to the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians that he's talking to. But as we understand, this has come to include the Gentiles as well. But historically speaking, he says that these heirs were kept under a guardian. They were kept under trustees until they would receive the promises that would belong to them. And they would only receive these promises when the Gentiles would also be incorporated. Now that, that is a privilege to receive that promise, but what Paul is saying here is that for those Jewish Christians that he's writing to, he's saying that you really were in no different of a position when it came to your own enslavement. Because while you were the heir of this promise, you couldn't do anything with it. And we can kind of think about how this would play out practically. In those days, there would be a child who would be the heir of an estate. And if given that estate, they, they, they might own it, but they couldn't control it. And they might be given a guardian who would follow them around and make sure they didn't get into trouble. So even while one day this guardian, who may have been one of their slaves, they might rule them, when they're a child, they have no say-so. They have to listen to what their nanny's basically saying. There's a time when the heir is under a nanny. And we can imagine that too. You know, if I gave one of your kids a million dollars, you know, and your kid's like six years old, <laughs> You're not going to let them just go and buy as many Happy Meals as, you want, as they want. 
They might be able to enjoy that money one day, but you're going to control it until they can handle it responsibly. What God's law really demonstrates is our own brokenness, our own immaturity, our unpreparedness to receive His promises so that it's revealed that we are no different than slaves. And that's what he revealed throughout the Old Testament for the Jewish people. When we look at Paul's writings and some of his other letters, look at Romans, he talks about how it was never the case that this law could save us. That this law was always intended to just expose our brokenness, to expose our condition, to expose our need for a Savior, for Jesus Christ, and all, that all of this is leading up to Christ. Look at Romans 3, verses 9 through 10 and 19 through 20. Paul says, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? He's speaking as a Jew. Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And you jump down to verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. No one's going to be able to say boo. No one's going to be saying, actually, I'm good enough, God, to enter the kingdom of God. Everyone's going to be held accountable. Therefore... No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So by nature, we all have a certain moral sense in our minds where we can discern right from wrong. We see this worldwide. While there might be some slight differences in the details, pretty much worldwide, everyone recognizes like murder's bad. Other, you know, other things along those line are, lines are bad. God's law certainly does give you more information. And that was the blessing of, of the Jews, that they were able to see completely what God was demanding of them. But what it just proved to them is that they didn't measure up at all, that none of us measure up at all. And that they couldn't do anything despite what they knew. Paul testifies to this even regarding himself. Romans 7, verses 14 through 18, he says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. That's the human condition. Everyone knows the good that you're supposed to do. Everyone has kind of this ideal image of like, this is how humans ought to be. And yet we're all hypocrites. None of us actually, actually live it out. We don't carry it out. And so... Paul says in Galatians 2, verses 15 through 16 and verse 21, he says, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Just by following the law, you can't, you can't justify yourself because you won't follow them. You'll prefer disobedience, doing your things your own way rather than the ways of God. And in verse 21, Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And this kind of returns us just back to the whole main question behind Christmas is, if everything was all right, if apart from Christ, like, we could get to heaven, we could have eternal life, we're all good, people don't need Jesus, then we have to ask, well, why did Jesus have to come at all then? What's the purpose in Christ's coming if it was not necessary for him to come in order for us to be saved? The only explanation is that Christ came so that we might put our faith in him. And in putting our faith in him, we might be saved. And Paul also says, you know, t- just testifying to our broken condition, he says that the explanation for our inabilities is that all of us were subject to these elemental forces in the world. And this includes both Jew and Gentile. When you look at Galatians 4, 8 through 9, he refers a little bit more explicitly to the Gentile side of things about how they were slave to those who are by nature not gods. When you look in Colossians uh, 2, 16 through 17, um, and then verses 20 through 23, he talks about how all these laws about what you don't eat, what you don't drink, things about Sabbath days and all of this, he says in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. I will read this verse in full just because I think it's so important and just really driving home the point that all this is meant to lead to Christ. Hebrews 9, 9 through 10. The writer of Hebrews says, This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations implying until the time of the new order. When we look at Jesus, when we see Jesus, we're seeing the introduction of a new order. There really truly is a B.C. and an A.D. when it comes to Christ. Before Christ and then Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. We now live in the year of our Lord. We live in a new order in which we are no longer subject to these elementary ABC kind of rules about don't eat this, don't do this, do that. None of the, all those things were just bumpers. They were just guardrails, just trying to preserve things and also expose things until our true salvation would be revealed in Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul says in verse 4 that all this waited until the set time had fully come. Now, God only knows all of the full set of conditions 
that needed to come into place in order for Christ to come. But I think it's good for us to also just appreciate the point of history in which Christ came. And I've got a map up here. This is about 107 AD-ish. So it's within 100 years of Christ's lifetime. This is taken from the t- this is a map from the time of the Emperor Hadrian. And you see all those red lines. And what is the and all those red lines represent road systems, the Roman road system around the Mediterranean, up into Europe, even up into Britain. That road system offered a radical opportunity for the spread of the gospel that wasn't available before this time. Before you had the Roman Empire in place, you had all kinds of barbarian tribes and stuff up here, and you couldn't go into those places. You couldn't access them. But at this point in time, all of this becomes accessible. You also have the common language at that time, the trade language, Greek. That was because of Alexander the Great, as he swept through and conquered nations. Um, he brought Greek culture with them, and so everyone learned to speak Greek because it was great for trade. Kind of like today, everyone learns to speak English because it's great to trade. We're, we're very lucky as Americans. You can go to a lot of countries and people will speak your language because it's, it's great for commerce. That was the situation at this time. You couldn't count on that before. Before, it's like no one spoke your language. There were, you wouldn't be able to con- converse with other people. But at this point in history, when Christ came, all this opened up, and it just, just so happened to match perfectly with the commission that Christ gave his disciples, that they should go forth with the gospel message. Seems a little bit more than a coincidence, right? But more than this, more than just some of the historical circumstances and Christ's coming fulfilling that time playing out, we also know that it has to deal with the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of God's plans and purpose. We see Jesus testified to this himself in Mark 1.15. He says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Matthew 5.17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Paul says in Romans 10.4, Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So even as the law is passing away in Christ, it's only passing away because he's bringing it to fulfillment. Not God's law isn't being thrown away, it's actually being met in Christ. And these conditions are met as Christ is born of a woman that is talking about how Christ is truly human, and he's born under the law. Why is Jesus born under the law? He's born under the law, Paul says here in Galatians 4 to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption to sonship. The question is how? How does he redeem us, those of us who are under the law? 
We've already talked about how humans are basically in a bad spot. We know what we should do. We don't do it. So just knowing, and knowing more of what God wants us to do and not doing it just condemns us all the more. How does it get fixed? Well, if you go back to Galatians 3, look at verse 13. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And that quotation there, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, is taken from Deuteronomy 21-23. So, to understand this accurately, we've already talked about how the law is a curse to us because it only condemns us because we don't, we don't obey it. We disobey it. And so he can't save us. Now, the thing that's different with Jesus is that he doesn't disobey the law. In fact, he's perfectly righteous. He, he meets all the requirements of the law, which, if you want to just boil it down to its essence, is really this. Love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Seems simple, but we disobey those commands all the time. But Jesus did not. He was perfectly loving. And so the question is, is, well, how does Jesus come under the curse then if he doesn't sin? Well, the way that Jesus comes under the curse is by joining us on the gallows. He experiences he experiences the curse of the cross, though he doesn't deserve it. We're the ones who deserve that kind of outcome for our lives. And yet he stands in our place. We see how this is prophesied hundreds of years before in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5. It says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. And I've put in brackets there, our curse. Our pain and bore our suffering, our curse. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. We thought he was cursed by God because of all that was falling upon him. But then the prophet Isaiah says this in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus suffered a death that he didn't deserve. But in the death that he suffered, he came under the curse that belonged to us. And in submitting himself to death, he was submitting himself to God's judgment. What would be the verdict? Would he be judged innocent or guilty? That's what Peter says in his letter, 1 Peter 2.23. He says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So what is God's verdict on Jesus? 
Is he innocent or guilty? We see God's verdict three days later when he's raised from the dead. If Christ was not who he said he was, if he was just like the rest of us, sinners, then he would have remained under death's curse. He would have succumbed to it. But he overcomes it because he is the one man who is truly righteous. And this makes all the difference in the world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If Christ is not raised, it doesn't matter how much faith you have. You could have all the faith in the world, and we like to talk about you know, having faith. and just It's not the faith that saves us, it's Christ who saves us. And as we come to Him and put our trust in Him, but if there's no there there, if Christ is dead as a doornail, if there's no one who can cover us, who can clothe us with salvation, then we're still stuck in our sins. We're still under the curse. But Christ was raised from the dead. And so Paul can say in verse 45, So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. First Adam just lived for himself and then also brought death on the rest of us. But Christ, as this last Adam, can give life to us. He can redeem those who are under the law. And it's because he is a ransom that restores. We've buried ourselves in debt under the law. We're not right with God. But through Jesus, things are able to be made right between us and God. Because Jesus offers everything that he expects of us. And so he settles our past grievances. The past grievance and sin that lies between us and God. Hebrews 9.15 it says, for this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 5-6, through 6, Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And if we were thinking, like, maybe this is just something that Paul cooked up, like this notion that Jesus was our ransom, we just go to the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 20, verses 28, this is what Jesus says of himself. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave himself as a ransom in order to deal with our past so that we could be forgiven of our sins. But he also offers himself as a ransom so that we might have a future with God. 
Jesus is the, the ransom that fully restores us, not just our status with God, but also restores our being with God. Because if Jesus just covered our past sins and like said, here you go, you sit with God now, we've already talked about it. We go right back to sin. So we really need to be fixed. And we do get fixed in Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, none of us could get saved by the law, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have set their minds, have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. So Christ has come in order that we may no longer be under any condemnation so that he might be our sin offering, so that we might be made right with God, but also so that we would receive the Spirit. The Spirit is better than the law. The law does not actually produce righteousness in us, but the Holy Spirit, as, it comes to, as he comes to dwell within us, produces real righteousness in us, not from ourselves, but from Christ. That's why Paul says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And because this obedience comes from the heart, it can be characterized as true liberty and freedom that we experience. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's freedom. That's what God is offering us. Jesus has come to give us a new kind of life. The kind of life in which we are no longer slaves to ourselves. We think that we have a very thin notion of freedom. Which is this idea of that I get to just choose between two options and thereby I'm free. And as long as I just have that technical choice, then I'm free and that's all good. But how free are we when we keep doing those things that just destroy our lives? When we give ourselves over to our various addictions, when we hand ourselves over to anger and pride and selfishness, yeah, we get to choose those things. We're not really free. We're not the kind of people that God created us to be. We're not at the height of our powers. We're bound up as slaves. When Christ comes, our freedom comes. Because in Him we are forgiven, and in Him we can receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit leads us to walk in God's ways just as Jesus did. And so because of this, we can experience real true joy. because of what Jesus did that this is possible. Because our hearts are no longer far from God. Our hearts are brought 
together with him so that what he loves, we now love also. And so, as Paul says here, we come to him crying out, Abba, Father. Now the word Abba here is, in the, is just the Aramaic word for Father. But it's a very intimate form of it. There was other Aramaic terms that were much more formal where, you know, actually, you know, in the English language, Father is very formal. But it'd be more comparable to calling upon your Father as Dad or Daddy. And this is the way in which Christ approached the Father. And as we are joined to Him, we too can approach the Father in the same intimate manner, calling upon Him as Dad, Abba, Father. This is what our hearts sing out as we've been joined to Christ. This transformation doesn't earn our inheritance, but it signals that we have received this inheritance, that this inheritance belongs to us because it's symptomatic of it. When people see this in our lives, how we are no longer slaves to sin, when we see that we approach God in this familiar manner, in this loving manner, it's all pointing to the reality that we are God's children. The strange story of Christmas is the story of God busting us out of prison. It's an inside-out kind of story because the Son of God joined us behind the barbed wire and prison bars to bring us out. It's it's an upside-down kind of story because the Son exchanged His glory for the humblest of births. Strangest of all, stranger than the circumstances, stranger than the opportunity it offers us, is the motive behind it all, which we hear in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have ever eternal life. It's because God so loved the world that we celebrate Christmas. How strange it is that God would love you and me. Strange that God would love these jibber-jabbering hunks of flesh and bone that give him lip rather than praise. Strange except for the fact that God is love. On Christmas, God comes to us so that we can come to Him. So that we can call Him Abba, Father. So that with the Apostle John, we can joyfully proclaim, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That is what we are. That is what we can become because Jesus Christ is born. Let's pray.
Dear Father, we come before You this morning with gratitude because apart from Your love for us, we would remain as slaves of sin. We would remain under the condemnation of the law, Father, because we do not have the will to live according to Your righteousness. And Father, we recognize that the problem lies with us and not with You. And yet, Father, though it was our problem and not Yours, You sent Your Son so that we might be reconciled to You. So that we might be called Your children. So that we could approach You calling You Father, Abba, Daddy. There's no greater gift, Father, that we could ask on Christmas than that of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Because He gives us hope that we will receive in fullness the inheritance which You have promised. And we experience this inheritance today, Father, as You free us to walk in the Spirit. We know more is to come. And so, Father, thank You for giving us this hope which burns brightly and abides through all circumstances because Christ is born. In His name we pray. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as Deacon John Lauder brings us a message from God's Word. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.